morning. Thank you so much to the Hall family. I would like to wish all of the mothers a happy Mother's Day. Um, on Mother's Day, I always try to be sensitive to the fact that this day can mean a lot of different things to different people. Um, for some women, Mother's Day is an awesome day and an exciting day and a fun day. Um, but then there's also people who have mothers who have passed away. I think about my grandma Benner, who died in 2008. Today would have been her birthday. I think about people who wanted to be mothers, and that desire hasn't or was never met, or those who have had to suffer the agonizing loss of miscarriage, or those who have outlived children. And again, for many, Mother's Day can be a tough day. Those who might not have the best relationships with a mother, or mothers who might not have the best relationship with a child. And so I try to think of all of those people on Mother's Day. Um, but still would like to, once again, celebrate the mothers here that we have in this church and the amazing work. This morning, I was reflecting, Robbie's six and a half months old, and I thought, if I had to spend just one 24-hour day alone with Robbie, it would just be utter chaos. I mean, I can take care of him for a couple hours, and we're pretty good, but uh, longer than about three hours, and... Somehow she'd come back and the house would be just rubble and he'd be naked and screaming and... <laughs> John chapter 20 is where we'll be this morning as we resume in John and the plan, Lord willing, um, down the home stretch of John is just to, over the next few weeks, finish out this gospel. And again, it's... It, I might just be speaking for myself, but I'm going to be sad to be done with the gospel of John. It's been... A great ride through this wonderful book in God's Word. John chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know where Jesus, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he had said these things to her. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the mothers that we have in this church. Lord, motherhood is something that you created. Lord, the ways in which mothers nurture and sacrificially love and care for their children. Lord, it is truly a blessing to have a great mother. And Lord, we pray for the women in this church. Lord, we pray for our time today as we study in your word. Lord, 
This day and every day, we pray that we can be pointed to truth, pointed to the gospel, pointed to the love of Christ. Lord, we pray for farmers this week as whether finally, if it be according to your will, begin to dry up and heat up. And Lord, pray that farmers can get crops into the ground and pray that you would bless those efforts, Lord. Not just for them, but for everyone and every animal and every various aspect of where the crops go. But Lord, we pray that, uh, that they would be fruitful and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Obviously, the most striking thing about this passage is that Mary Magdalene sees the risen Jesus on the first Easter. That's what it's all about. But that doesn't mean that that's all that there is to this passage. As the Apostle John records the first sighting of the risen Lord, he doesn't give a lot of flowery or extreme language or drama. He records things very matter-of-factly and with subtlety, which can make it easy to miss some of the powerful allusions that John is making to the Old Testament. Jesus is risen, and again, that is the most important thing that mankind can know. And this passage is also pointing back to the ways in which Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament. And to understand that makes this passage a truly awe-inspiring and edifying story from God's Word. So the plan this morning is to look at the Gospel, past, present, and future. Technically, it'll actually be past, future, and then present, because that's the order we're going to go in in the text. And the main idea of the passage this week is that Jesus lives and promises eternal life because he fulfills an eternal plan. With that, we begin in the past. And we'll go all the way back to the fall of humanity and man's expulsion from the garden in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. And Genesis mentions that cherubim, which were angelic-type beings, were given charge to guard the garden. Cherubim are mentioned about a hundred times in the Old Testament, and their function is that they are the ones who guard the holy places of God. And they guard the garden which houses the tree of life. Fast forward to when the Israelites have been freed from slavery from Egypt. The last roughly quarter of the book of Exodus is giving instructions for the tabernacle, which was a tent-like structure, which was portable, and which the Israelites would take with them during their Exodus wanderings. The tabernacle represented God's presence with his people. Now, God gives very specific instructions for the tabernacle. With what it represented, the tabernacle was not something that was just meant to be haphazardly built, because it was a sacred place. And the first aspect of the tabernacle, which is described in Exodus, is the Ark of the Covenant in chapter 25. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a wooden rectangular box, which, which measured 
roughly four feet by three feet by four feet high. But in Exodus, it also has instructions for the intricate ornamentation that was to go on top of the Ark of the Covenant. The top was to be made from gold, which was called the mercy seat. Now, when we think of the word seat, I think we think of a chair. But I don't think that's really helpful to understand what it was. Think of the mercy seat more in terms of being a symbol of God's power. Sometimes Washington, D.C. will be referred to as the seat of government or to the seat of our democracy. And I think that's a more helpful way to think of the mercy seat. It is the seat of divine mercy. Quoting from Exodus chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end, and one cherub on the other end. Just for reference, here's a modern rendering of what the Ark of the Covenant would have looked like. And on top of that, you have the mercy seat with the two golden cherubim. And so the mercy seat covered the ark. And again, they were commanded to make two cherubs. The cherubs were a symbol of the angels who guarded the places of God, where God's glorious presence dwelt. To quote Philip Ryken talking about the mercy seat, its cover was a three-dimensional picture of a scene from heaven, where God is surrounded by his holy angels. The cherubim on the ark represented the burning angels beneath God's throne. The writer of Hebrews talked about the contents of the Ark of the Covenant, and he also pointed to the golden cherubim in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So to recap, you have the Ark of the Covenant, which was inside the tabernacle. Atop the Ark was the mercy seat with the two golden cherubim. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was not just inside the tabernacle, but inside a special part of the tabernacle, which was called the most holy place. Sometimes also referred to as the Holy of Holies. Or if you want to get really fancy, sometimes also referred to as the Sanctum Sanctorum. Exodus chapter 26, verses 33 and 44, talks of the separating off of the holy place from the most holy place. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. It is where Moses would go to hear from the Lord. And it was the place where the high priests would later go to make sacrifices. Now, the other major Old Testament passage, which deals with the most holy place, which housed the Ark of the Covenant in the mercy seat, is Leviticus chapter 16, which talks about the priestly functions on the annual Day of Atonement. That was the only time in the year where the high priest 
was permitted to go inside the most holy place once a year to offer sacrifices for the people. Among other activities on this Day of Atonement, the priest would select two goats. One would be released, which was a symbol of forgiveness and God taking away our sin. The other goat was sacrificed. This was a symbol of the cost of sin and of our need for atonement. Inside the most holy place, the priest would also take the blood of a bull who had been sacrificed and make atonement for his own sins before making atonement for the sins of the Israelites. I don't have a slide for this, but Leviticus 16.14 says, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. And in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Next, the priest would take the blood of the goat who had been sacrificed and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. Leviticus 16, 15 and 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. So on that one day of the year, the blood would cover the mercy seat as a symbol of the atonement which the people of God needed. The gospel points to Jesus as being the one who is the truly worthy one to be sacrificed for sins. That his blood was shed for sins. His life was given for the cost of sins so that we could be freed. He died so that we could have life. With that, we come to John chapter 20. On Easter, a few weeks ago, I talked about how John and Peter were both witnesses to the empty tomb. John chapter 20 verse 8 says that John saw and believed, but he had not yet seen the risen Lord. John chapter 20, verse 10 says, Then the disciples went back to their homes. That takes them away from the tomb, and we again see the return of Mary Magdalene. Now, in John chapter 20, verse 1, that same woman, Mary Magdalene, had been the one who discovered the empty tomb and come back. Begin in our passage, verses 11 and 12. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she, as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the hand and one at the feet. Everything we've been talking about points to these two verses. As two cherubim had been made out of gold to form the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant, which sat inside the most holy place where only the priest could enter, on the first Easter... Mary looks into the empty tomb to see two angels who are sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. She's seen the true mercy seat. The most holy place was a sacred space, which was separated off by a curtain. When Jesus was buried, the tomb was sealed by a large rock. The face of Jesus had been covered with a cloth covering. But on Easter, the stone is removed. In the earlier part of John chapter 20, we saw that the face covering of Jesus was still in the tomb. John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7. 
This is when John and Peter see the empty tomb. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, verse 51, when Jesus dies, Matthew mentions that the veil of the temple had been torn in two. All of that points to the work that Jesus has accomplished. That he now allows us to enter the holy place because Jesus is the true high priest who enters, who gives us entrance. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us not, I'm sorry, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He is the true high priest. He is the true sacrifice. He is the one who removes the veil. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, talks of Jesus as the sacrifice. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In Exodus 40, there is a dramatic scene where the glory of the Lord enters the tabernacle. Exodus 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Mary is about to behold the glory of the risen Jesus. Again, the tabernacle was a holy place, but Jesus is the true tabernacle. In John chapter 1, verse 14, the apostle writes of Jesus when he says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when we preached on John chapter 1, I made the point that in the Greek, the word for dwelt really means something more along the lines of tabernacled or pitched a tent among us. Again, the tabernacle represented the presence and glory of God with his people. Jesus is the presence and glory of God with his people. And so you have these Themes of sacrifice, the mercy seat, the most holy place, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the glory of God. And Mary is seeing this convergence of all of these themes as she looks inside the empty tomb. She doesn't realize it. That's a pretty overwhelming sight to behold and a pretty complex set of ideas to put together in an instant. But in hindsight, you can see all the meaning of what Mary witnessed in the moments to her finally witnessing the risen Lord. The two angels speak to her. Angels are speaking to her, and her grief of the crucifixion is so strong and so powerful that the significance of the fact that angels are talking to her is lost on Mary. Verse 13. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. As Mary has done earlier in John chapter 20, she seems to think that grave robbers have raided the tomb. She's looking at the true mercy seat and can't see the good news. 
The empty tomb is the new Ark of the Covenant. And that's the theme we start to see in this passage. That Jesus brings something better than the old covenant because he is God with us. Because he is the final sacrifice. Because he is the great high priest. Because his blood is the blood that truly takes away our sins. Continuing in our passage, we look forward. And it matters that we look forward because it is through the work of Christ and what he has done in sacrificing himself and in satisfying the commands of the Old Testament that we have a future hope with Christ. As Mary grieves, her sorrow is about to be turned to joy. In town, we had garage sales last week. I feel like every year I'll see a few stories in the news about somebody who at a garage sale or a thrift store or in an attic finds something and it ends up being like a million dollar painting. I read a story about a family who found a bowl at a garage sale. They thought it looked nice. So they sat it in their living room as a decoration. They bought it for $3. Eventually they had somebody examine it and look at it. It was over a thousand years old. Dated to the Song Dynasty in China, auctioned for $2.2 million. I actually read a story last night right before I went to bed about a woman who, for like $35 at Goodwill, bought this like statue, it was like a statue of the head of a Roman leader. Once again, she had somebody take a look at it, and it dates to around the first century, actually. And they believe it was stolen during World War II by an Allied troop who brought it back. I think she's actually going to return it, which is good for her. I enjoy watching clips of the Antiques Roadshow that I'll sometimes see. You'll see a person who has something that they enjoy, that they like, that they never thought was really all that extraordinary. And then they find out that it was something that was actually incredibly valuable. And sometimes you just see the look of shock and joy and surprise as they learn this. And if you're like me, the first thing you think when you see that is, why can't that ever happen to me? (laughs) But in Christ, we have something of true value, and Mary was about to receive the great surprise of all human history. In the face of grief and the loss of her beloved friend and teacher, she would be the first person to see the risen Lord. Verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus is behind Mary, and she doesn't know it. Now, before we talk about Mary seeing the risen Lord, I want to take us back for a moment to John chapter 18 and the arrest of Jesus. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus, sorry, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? At the beginning of the arrest, death, resurrection narrative, John introduces us to a garden. 
And if you remember when we talked about this a couple months ago, I argued that that was thematic and theological. Only John's gospel refers to the place of Jesus' arrest as a garden. And the point is that John is pointing to the new creation that Jesus is bringing. We also see a garden associated with the burial of Jesus in John 19, verses 40 and 41. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Only John's gospel refers to the place where Jesus is buried as in a garden. That's how chapter 19 ends, by the way. The next verse in John's gospel is Mary Magdalene discovering the empty tomb on Easter. Jesus is arrested in a garden. He's buried in a garden. And as a distraught Mary looks into the tomb... Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Whom are you seeking? It's the same question that he asks the people who came to arrest him in John chapter 18. And here the risen Jesus asks the the same thing to Mary. Whom are you seeking? Who are you looking for? And I'll ask the same question to you. Whom are you seeking? What kind of Savior do you expect? Again, many in our society like to talk about God as if he's basically whatever they want him to be. It's a theology of preference, like ordering a la carte. carte, That I want a Savior who loves, but not one who judges. I want a Savior who blesses, but not one who expects. I want a Savior who makes me happy, but I don't care so much about a Savior who makes me holy. I want a Savior who does what I want, but who doesn't really disrupt my life too much. I want the good stuff, but everything else we can keep on the side. Jesus is here to save the whole person. Jesus is here to be the Lord and Savior of your whole life. And then in the second part of verse 15, it shows Mary's response, where it says, Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I love that. Supposing him to be the gardener. Arrested in a garden, buried in a garden, and first seen resurrected, mistaken for a gardener. When we talked about John chapter 18, I said that the first garden, referring to Eden, was a perfect place where humanity brought on death because of sin. In this second garden, a perfect Jesus will bring eternal life because he will suffer the consequences of sin and experience death. The first garden was the place where humanity fell. This second garden is the place where Jesus redeems. Jesus is the gardener because he's the one who takes us back to the garden. In John chapter 15... Excuse me. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Jesus is the vine that nourishes, that sustains, that nurtures our growth and life. And he's the gardener who tends to a new garden. 
In the final chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, it describes the river of life and the new Jerusalem. It's an Edenic setting in its language. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding us for each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That is the hope that we have through Christ because we have a Savior who is risen and lives. And he is taking us back to that garden. Jesus lives and promises eternal life because he fulfills an eternal plan. We come to our third point. We've looked at the gospel past and future, but what does it mean for us in the present? We return to our passage. Mary still thinks that she's talking to the gardener. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. I can only speak for myself, but I again find it interesting how understated this is. No thunder or great flashes of lightning or fireworks. And it's rare that I get choked up. But when I was working on the sermon this week, really the beautiful simplicity of this moment struck me. That that was all it took. Him to call her by her name. And in an instant, the grief and sorrow disappeared and she saw the risen Jesus. In John chapter 10, the passage where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He says in verses 3 and 4, The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus calls us by name. He knows us by name because we have a personal Savior. He knows us. He knows our sins, and he offers forgiveness anyway. He knows us at our worst, and he loves us anyway. Mary turns to Jesus, and she, too, responds with one word, Rabboni. And John says in Aramaic that that word means teacher. Certainly, Jesus is that. But the risen Jesus is so much more than simply a teacher. He's a savior. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. D.A. Carson calls this verse one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament. Why does he tell Mary not to cling to him? That seems kind of odd. And what does the command have to do with his ascension to the Father? During his ministry, people touch Jesus all the time. A woman wipes his feet with her hair. He washes the feet of his own disciples. He touches lepers. He touches the eyes of a man born blind. And actually, in this same chapter, John chapter 20, Jesus will tell doubting Thomas to touch the holes in his hands. So why does he tell Mary to back off? 
I'll give three reasons. First, in this moment, when Mary is so overjoyed to see that Jesus has risen from the dead, he's actually pointing to a bigger picture. She's so relieved and thankful that he's alive, but Jesus is saying, in effect, that the purposes for his ministry and ascension are so much bigger than this moment of being in close physical proximity to him. Second, Grant Osborne suggests that Jesus is pointing forward to the new age, that is, the church age that we're living in. Mary had seen the risen Jesus and addressed him as teacher. And as I said a moment ago, he is so much more than that. But and simply calling him teacher, that's looking back at Jesus with the language of the Old Testament. He is the Lord and Savior. And the command not to cling to him is meant to instruct her not to cling to the previous work of Christ in the previous age and the old covenant. But then he's pointing forward to a new relationship with the people of God as Jesus ascends to the Father and he will rule and reign as Lord and Savior over his church by sending his spirit. And certainly the sending of the spirit is something that Jesus talks a lot about in the chapters leading up to his arrest. And Jesus telling her not to cling to him That can seem cold or distant. But he's not giving less of himself. He's giving more of himself in a relationship with Jesus, which will have a greater knowledge and understanding of Jesus as his people live, empowered by his spirit. Third, he tells her not to cling to him because there's work to do. The second part of verse 17. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus is pointing to a new relationship we now have with him because of the resurrection. He calls the disciples his brothers. It's the first time he says that in this gospel. And he refers to God as their father. It's because Jesus is the true son of the father that we too can be sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of Christ. That's what the gospel means today. It means a new way of relating to God. In Romans 8, Paul will talk about how we are adopted through Christ. And the new relationship is possible because on the first Easter, the tomb was empty. Jesus' ascension came 40 days after the resurrection. But between Easter and the Ascension, he was appearing and preparing his disciples. So from this passage, what does the gospel mean for us today? Focus on two things. The new relationship we have with God and a new purpose that we have because Christ is risen. Verse 18 Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he had said these things to her. Again, Mary is the first person to see the risen Jesus. And as she leaves to find the disciples, she will also become the first person to share the good news that Jesus is risen and lives. I think of how much of a struggle that so often is for so many of us to talk about Jesus and to share our faith. It would have been unthinkable 
that Mary would see the risen Jesus and not share that news, wouldn't it? It's unimaginable. That Jesus is alive. How could she not run and tell people that news? But we withhold it all the time. Well, that's different, you might say. We have the same good news that Mary had. We have the same Savior that Mary had. Jesus is just as alive today as he was on the first Easter. So what's our excuse? The gospel past, present, and future. We see the work of God throughout time and how Christ fulfills it. We see the relationship that Jesus invites us into today. And we see the eternal hope that we have through him. And yes, we should see the empty tomb, but that we're also meant to share that. We had a missions training a couple months ago, and one of the big things that they talked about in that training was having someone in your life who you know is not a Christian and faithfully praying for that person every day. And if you've, if you've forgotten or haven't started doing that, let me encourage you to do that. But I would also challenge you to actually talk to someone who you don't think is a Christian about Jesus. It's amazing how hard that can be for so many of us. And as always, I'll be the first to admit, it's a struggle for me too. But how do we respond to knowing that our Lord is risen from the dead? We should respond by telling others and sharing the good news. Sometimes you'll see someone who's a new Christian, and really they can be some of the best evangelists. Someone whose life has been totally changed by Jesus And it's like they can't talk about anything else. But so often, somewhere down the line, so many of us lose that passion to share. We talked about this passage on Easter Sunday, and it was fitting. But I think we should celebrate every Sunday like it's Easter. Every Sunday is a celebration that Christ is risen But it should also be the focal point of every day of a Christian's life. That we live in the light of a risen Savior. That we believe in a Savior who reigns from heaven. And so that is my prayer for us. That we be a church who not just struggles, but who is enthusiastic to share the good news. Mary saw the risen Lord on the first Easter. She didn't understand it all. She didn't understand all the implications of what that sighting meant. But she had enough information to share that news with others. That Jesus is the Savior of the world who once died, but is risen. And may we be a church who enthusiastically will share that with our community, with our families, with our neighbors, with our co-workers, to the glory of Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, it's so tempting to be timid about our faith, Lord. Sure, we can talk about opinions or what we believe, but let us not lose sight that more than anything, what the world needs is to know the Savior that we know. They need to know that the gospel is good news, that there is forgiveness that is found in Christ, there is life that is found in Christ, that we have a Savior who came into this world, who understands the frailties and sin and fallings of this world, 
but who loved this world, who died to save this world, and who lives to redeem. In his name we pray. Amen.